Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning, and welcome to Teddy Talks for Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. I'm Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park. On this May 5th, we'll uh, follow Theodore Roosevelt through New Mexico in 1903. Uh, we'll hear from Theodore Roosevelt as well on the War of 1812, uh, the Battle of Oswego, New York, a naval battle transferring to land. And then Theodore Roosevelt from Christiana, uh, today Greater Oslo, Norway, uh, where though he accepted uh, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 1906, conferred for the settling of the Treaty of Portsmouth in 1905, settling the Russo-Japanese War, uh, he, while he had a message of acceptance that was read on his behalf in Norway in 1906, this was his first chance after having been in Africa for a year after his presidency, then touring Europe as part of the European tour, finally getting to uh, Norway to say thank you to the Nobel Committee and to make a rather forceful statement about America's role in the world. Uh, so on this date uh, in history, May 5th, 1778, General George Washington, uh, in the early years of our Revolutionary War, after a great deal of frustration uh, organizing the militia, uh, against uh, the uh, the English, he appointed Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. That's actually Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Steuben, a uh, Prussian baron who made his way to the United States uh, via Paris, where he consulted with Benjamin Franklin. First would have liked to have been uh, uh, given a paid commission, was signed up as a volunteer, and then after having uh, proved himself went from temporary inspector general to full-time inspector general. Reading about von Steuben, uh, one learns, of course, that he uh, trained cavalry, uh, trained our soldiers to understand that their bayonet was not simply a tool in camp uh, to be used in cooking, but instead famous, I think, at the Battle of Stony Point, New York, that uh, von Steuben's uh, trained forces had a famous uh, charge by uh, uh, by. Uh, nothing but bayonet uh, against the English. So von Steuben assisted us in having regulations and uh, sanitation in camp and uh, in training uh, that impacted the manual of arms for the United States Army for a century and a half uh, to follow. Von Steuben's uh, burial places in 
upstate New York. And if you're traveling through that uh, through that region, uh, stop and be inspired by von Steuben. 1814, the Battle of uh, Fort Ontario, Oswego, New York. We'll return to that with Theodore Roosevelt's writings. Sometimes I like to go back in 19th century history a little bit, just because the vestiges, the impacts of what was written, the dynamics of war and peace uh, in Europe and elsewhere, impacted Theodore Roosevelt's uh, knowledge and viewpoint of the world. So on May 5th, 1818, the birth of Karl Marx, German philosopher, uh, uh, Marx and uh, Hegel, uh, uh, famous uh, for uh, the founding of the uh, uh, the communist movement, uh, the Communist Manifesto, Das Kapital, written by Karl Marx, uh, born in Trier, Prussia, uh, and died in 1883. May 5th, 1821, the death of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, the former French military leader and emperor of the French from 1804 to 1814, again in 1815. Uh, he uh, dies in exile on the island of St. Helena, officially from stomach cancer, but rumors of poisoning by arsenic persist. May 5th, 1830, the birth in Orange, New Jersey, of John Batterson Stetson, an American hat manufacturer. Stetson, still a great hat, and Theodore Roosevelt, very often uh, those beautiful hats that Theodore Roosevelt uh, wore, uh, his cowboy hats were Stetsons. And uh, May 5th, 1862, uh, the origin of Cinco de Mayo, uh, French army intervenes in Puebla. Mexico, uh, the Battle of Puebla, and uh, May 5th, 1864. A uh, great deal of, uh, we've uh, probably could do a great deal more about uh, spring offensives in World War One, spring offensives in the Civil War, uh, spring hunting adventures in British East Africa. Uh, but this was uh, a particular, was the Battle of Wilderness in Virginia on this date, 1864. Union General Alexander Hayes killed in action. Confederate General John M. Jones killed in action. Confederate General Leroy Augustus Stafford mortally wounded. Uh, they say that uh, after the war, when President uh, Ulysses S. Grant visited the uh, gravesite of his uh, uh, West Point uh, mate and dear friend, General Hayes, that President uh, Grant wept at the grave of General Hayes. May 5th, 1865, the birth of Nellie Bly born Elizabeth Cochran Seaman in Cochran Mills, Pennsylvania, an American journalist and writer. Ten Days in a Madhouse, one of those early investigative journalists. Uh, she put herself under guise of being a mental patient into one of the mental asylums. And it was that sort of uh, report that uh, astounded and revolted and uh, led to uh, increased legislation and regulation of our uh, sanitariums. May 5th, 1893, the Panic of 1893, causes a large crash on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, these uh, uh, panics, the uh, boom and bust, the, uh, raid, the run on Wall Street. It is said that uh, in the Roosevelt family that uh, during many of the panics when others were selling that uh, the Roosevelts were buying, uh, hence uh, significant investments in uh, Manhattan real estate that uh, did quite well for the family. But that panic of 1893 uh, really stayed with the American psyche for uh, well into Theodore Roosevelt's administration. We'll visit with the president uh, in Santa Fe and Albuquerque, New Mexico Territory during uh, Roosevelt's presidency in the great 1903 tour. On this date, May 5th, 1908, uh, having made the voyage uh, down uh, around South America, the Great White Fleet arrives in San Francisco, California, 
uh, before its uh, departure for uh, for Japan and uh, uh, the Philippines. And so uh, uh, the Great White Fleet would be feted quite well in San Francisco for the following couple of days. May 5th, 1910, uh, that's uh, the time that Theodore Roosevelt finds himself uh, in Norway. Looking forward, uh, not uh, reading today, but May 5th, 1916, two things perhaps shows uh, uh, where Theodore Roosevelt was at this time in his life. He's not in the White House, and he would have been had he been successful as the candidate in 1912. May 5th, 1916, Theodore Roosevelt speaks to the children at uh, uh, at Cove School in Oyster Bay, New York. May 5th, 1916, under the orders of President Wilson, the Marines go ashore invading uh, Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. The United States would occupy uh, putting down a civil war in the Dominican Republic, uh, operating the customs houses, paying foreign debts on behalf of the Dominican. Uh, Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes during the Harding administration would come about an agreement. The Marines would uh, come home in 1924. We would operate the customs houses until 1941. And uh, uh, of course, this is part of big stick diplomacy. This is part of uh, the enforcement of the Roosevelt Corollary of the Monroe Doctrine. Let's go to 19, let's go to 1814. I did this uh, abortively yesterday when I began the battle a day early as as uh, uh, Sir James Yeo, or Yao, uh, had done on behalf of the British. Uh, the uh, Americans, as we left, had uh, scuttled uh, uh, their uh, their ship, the Growler, in the, uh, in the bay. Let's pick up on the fifth. This is the Naval War of 1812, written by young Theodore Roosevelt, uh, begun during his time at Harvard and uh, encouraged by his uncle James Bullock, Uncle Jimmy Bullock, who had exiled in Liverpool. Uh, Bullock was in charge of the Confederate Secret Service in Europe and built half of the Confederate Navy during the Civil War, including the Raiders, the CSS Shenandoah and the CSS uh, Alabama. Uh, Uncle Irvine Bullock uh, also exiled in Liverpool and both men buried today in Liverpool. Uh, he is said to have been the last man to have fired a cannon off of the Alabama in the fateful fight with Sarge. Here you get at part of Theodore Roosevelt's fascination with the Navy, his ability to write a uh, compendium that in the first few, first few chapters, he himself said those chapters might be as dry as a dictionary as he compared uh, the strength of naval vessels, the training of the seamen, uh, the uh, the poundage and tonnage of, uh, of cannons and shot fired and that sort of thing. You'll get a bit of that in his writing here later in the book. This is uh, the battles that occurred on Lake Ontario, uh, our own uh, 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 Admiral Chauncey. I don't believe Theodore Roosevelt thought very highly of Chauncey's inability to locate the enemy and engage him. We'll catch up on that. On the 5th of May, Yao appeared, Yao appeared off Oswego and sent in Captain Collier and 13 gunboats to draw the fort's fire. After some firing between them and the four guns mounted in the fort, two long 24s, one long 12, and one long 6. The gunboats retired. The next day, the attack was seriously made. The Princess Charlotte, Montreal, and Niagara, those are the British ships, they engaged the batteries while the Charwell and Star scoured the woods with grape to clear them of the militia. The debarkation of the troops was superintended by Captain O'Connor, and until it was accomplished, the Montreal 
sustained almost the whole fire of the fort, being set on fire three times and much cut up in hull, masts, and rigging. Under this fire, 800 British troops were landed under Lieutenant Colonel Fisher, assisted by 200 seamen armed with long pikes under Captain Mulcaster. They moved gallantly up the hill under a heavy fire and carried the fort by assault. Mitchell then fell back unmolested to the falls, about 12 miles above the town, where there was a large quantity of stores, but he was not again attacked. The Americans lost six men killed, including Lieutenant Blaney, 38 wounded and 25 missing, both of these last falling into the enemy's hands. The British lost 22 soldiers, Marines and seamen, including Captain Holloway, killed. And 73, including Captain, uh, including the gallant Captain Mulcaster dangerously and Captain Popham slightly wounded. The total loss being 95, nearly a third of the American force engaged. General Drummond in his official letter reports that, quote, the fort being everywhere almost open, the whole of the garrison affected their escape, except about 60 men, half of them wounded. No doubt the forts being everywhere almost open afforded excellent opportunities for retreat, but it was not much of a recommendation of it as a structure intended for defense. Uh, the British destroyed the guns, raised the growler. Uh, in uh, his critique uh, of uh, Commodore Chauncey, Major General Brown is in charge of the United States uh, Army forces in this region and has uh, been desirous of attacking up into Canada and uh, would need the Navy's cooperation in that effort. And here's a bit of what Roosevelt has to say about that. Major General Brown had written to Commodore Chauncey on July 13th, I do not doubt my ability to meet the enemy in the field and to march in any direction over his country, your fleet carrying for me the necessary supplies. We can threaten Forts George and Niagara and carry Burlington Heights and York and proceed direct to Kingston and carry that place. For God's sake, let me see you. Sir James will not fight. To which Chauncey replied, I shall afford every assistance in my power to cooperate with the army whenever it can be done without losing sight of the great object for the attainment of which this fleet has been created, the capture or destruction of the enemy's fleet. But that I consider the primary object. We are intended to seek and fight the enemy's fleet, and I shall not be diverted from my efforts to effectuate it in it by any sinister attempt to render us subordinate to or an appendage of the army. That is, by any sinister attempt to make him cooperate intelligently in a really well-concerted scheme of invasion. So uh, Theodore Roosevelt's take on Chauncey is, yes, he had this fleet that was created for the uh, purpose of capturing or destroying Yo's or Yao's uh, fleet, but he didn't do it. And if he wasn't going to do it, he might as well help the able uh, General Brown in his uh, invasion of Canada. I think as well, this gets to the point of young Theodore Roosevelt, who would have greatly desired that the United States uh, take Canada uh, when it was at its advantage to do so in the, in the 19th century. In 1903, Theodore Roosevelt is touring the Southwest. This is a, a portion of the... Uh, a portion of the Louisiana Purchase in part uh, as he tours Colorado and 
we get into some uh, ill-defined lines when we decide uh, later that uh, uh, we didn't purchase a Texas in that sort of a, in that purchase. But he makes a, a couple of remarks here first at a Catholic school in Albuquerque, uh, then again uh, in Santa Fe for the governor. Brief remarks in 1903 on the trail, President Theodore Roosevelt. Bishop, permit me to thank you and to say how much I appreciate the courtesy you showed in putting yourself to such inconvenience to come here to greet me. I had hoped to meet you at Santa Fe in the cathedral where I participated in the baptism of the son of one of the men of my regiment. I greet the school children and the sisters. There can be no greater privilege than to meet a missionary who has done good work. Of all the work that is done or that can be done for our country, the greatest is that of educating the body, the mind, and above all the character, giving spiritual and moral training to those who in a few years are themselves to decide the destinies of the nation. And at Santa Fe, New Mexico, the same date, May 5th, 1903. Mr. Governor, Mr. Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, it is of course with a peculiar feeling of pleasure that I come here to New Mexico, from which territory half, and if my memory serve me, serves me correctly, a little over half of the men of my regiment came the man is but a poor man whenever he may be born, to whom one part of this country is not exactly as dear as any other part. And I should count myself wholly unworthy of the position I hold if I did not strive to represent the people of the mountains and the plains exactly as much as those of the Mississippi Valley or of either coast, the Atlantic or the Pacific. I know your people. Mr. Governor, and I need not say how, found I, how fond I am of them, for that you know yourself. How could I help being fond of people with whom I have worked, with whom I have marched to battle? The only men here to whom I would not, uh, whom I would doff my hat quicker than to the men of my own regiment are the men of the great war. You know well the claim that comradeship in war makes between man and man. And it has always seemed to me, Mr. Governor, that in a sense, my regiment in its composition was a typical American regiment its people came from the west chiefly, but some from the east, from the south chiefly, but some from the north, so that every section was represented in it. They varied in birthplace as in creed. Some were born on this side of the water, some on the other side. Some of their ancestors had come to New Mexico, as did your ancestors, Mr. Governor, when this was already a city and at a time when not one English-speaking community existed on the Atlantic seaboard. Some were men whose forefathers were among the early Puritans and pilgrims. Some were of those whose forefathers had settled by the banks of the James even before the Puritan and pilgrim came to this country. But after your people came, there were men in that regiment who themselves were born or whose parents were born in England, Ireland, Germany, or Scandinavia. But there was not a man, no matter what his creed, what his birthplace, what his ancestry, who was not an American and nothing else. We had representatives of the real, original, native Americans because we had no inconsiderable number who were in whole or in part of Indian blood. There was in the regiment but one kind of rivalry among those men and but one would have been tolerated. That was the rivalry of each man to see if he could not do his duty a little better than anyone else. Short would have been the shrift of any man who tried to introduce division along the lines of 
section or creed or class. We had serving in the ranks men of inherited wealth and men all who all their lives had earned each day's bread by that day's labor. And they stood on a footing of exact equality. It would not have been any more possible for a feeling of arrogance to exist on one side than for a feeling of rancor and envy to exist on the other. I appreciate to the full all the difficulties under which you labor, and I think that your progress has been astonishing. I congratulate you upon all that has been done, and I am certain that the future will far more than make good the past. I believe that we have come upon an era of fuller development for New Mexico. That development must, of course, take place principally through the average of foresight, thrift, industry, energy, and will of the citizens of New Mexico. But the government can and will help somewhat. This is a great grazing state. Because of the importance of the grazing industry, I wish to bespeak your support for the preservation in proper shape of the forest reserves of the state. These forest reserves are created and are kept up in the interest of the homemaker. In many of them, there is much natural pasturage. Where that is the case, the object is to have that pasturage used by the settlers, by the people of the territory, not eaten out so that nobody will have the benefit after three years. I want the land preserved so that the pasturage will do, not merely for a man who wants to make a good thing out of it for two or three years, but for the man who wishes to see it preserved for the use of his children and his children's children. That is the way to use the resources of the land. I build no small hope upon the aid that under the wise law of Congress will ultimately be extended to this as to other states and territories in the way of governmental aid to irrigation. Irrigation is of course to be in the future well nigh the most potent factor in the agricultural development of this territory and one of the factors which will do most toward bringing it up to statehood. Nothing will count more than development of that kind in bringing the territory in as a state. That is the kind of development which I am most anxious to see here, the development that means permanent growth in the capacity of the land, not temporary, not the exploiting of the land for a year or two at the cost of its future impoverishment, but the building up of farm and ranch in such a shape as to benefit the homemaker whose intention it is that this territory of the present, this state of the future, shall be a great state in the American Union. Theodore Roosevelt in Albuquerque, uh, Santa Fe, Santa Fe, New Mexico, on this date in 1903. And now with a uh, a bit of a sprint to the uh, to the finish, but it is a, a sprint that uh, we'll take a little bit of listening. Two speeches, May 5th, 1910 in Norway. If you uh, uh, believe uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, he said, uh, uh, that his heart just about failed him when he understood he had to make a second speech. So the first on international uh, peace and address at the National Theater in Oslo, Norway, uh, the latter speech uh, delivered in an uh, evening uh, banquet setting, I believe. Uh, so uh, perhaps the uh, the first remarks are the ones to which we should pay the greatest attention for the, uh, the fact that uh, Theodore Roosevelt traveled with these thoughts in mind for quite a while and that may have actually had a good deal of this speech written before departing for Africa, if I know my teddy. International Peace. May 5th, 1910, address the National Theater in Oslo, Norway. 
It is with peculiar pleasure that I stand here today to express the deep appreciation I feel of the high honor conferred upon me by the presentation of the Nobel Peace Prize. The gold medal which formed part of the prize I shall always keep, and I shall hand it on to my children as a precious heirloom. The sum of money provided as part of the prize by the wise generosity of the illustrious founder of this world-famous prize system, I did not, under the peculiar circumstances of the case, feel at liberty to keep. I think it eminently just and proper that in most cases the recipient of the prize should keep for his own use the prize in its entirety. But in this case, while I did not act officially as President of the United States, it was nevertheless only because I was President that I was enabled to act at all. And I felt that the money must be considered as having been given me in trust for the United States. I therefore used it as a nucleus for a foundation to forward the cause of industrial peace, as being well within the general purpose of your committee. For in our complex industrial civilization of today, the peace of righteousness and justice, the only kind of peace worth having, is at least as necessary in the industrial world as among the nations. There is at least as much need to curb the cruel greed and arrogance of part of the world of capital, to curb the cruel greed and violence of part of the world of labor, is to check a cruel and unhealthy militarism in international relationships. We must ever bear in mind that the great end in view is righteousness, justice as between man and man, nation and nation, the chance to lead our lives on a somewhat higher level with a broader spirit of brotherly goodwill, one for another. Peace is generally good in itself, but it is never the highest good unless it comes as the handmaid of righteousness, and it becomes a very evil thing if it serves merely as a mask for cowardice and sloth, or as an instrument to further the ends of despotism or anarchy. We despise and abhor the bully, the brawler, the oppressor, whether in private or public life, but we despise no less the coward and the voluptuary, no man is worth calling a man who will not fight rather than submit to infamy or see those that are dear to him suffer wrong. No nation deserves to exist if it permits itself to lose the stern and virile virtues. This without regard to whether the loss is due to the growth of a heartless and all-absorbing commercialism, to prolonged indulgence in luxury and soft effortless ease, or to the deification of a warped and twisted sentimentality. Moreover, and above all, let us remember that words count only when they give expression to deeds or are to be translated into them. The leaders of the Red Terror prattle of peace while they steep their hands in the blood of the innocent. Many a tyrant has called it peace, and he has scourged honest protest into silence. Our words must be judged by our deeds, and in striving for a lofty ideal, we must use practical methods. And if we cannot attain all at one leap, we must advance towards it step by step, reasonably content so long as we do actually make some progress in the right direction. Now, having freely admitted the limitations of our work and the qualifications to be borne in mind, I feel that I have the right to have my words taken seriously 
when I point out where, in my judgment, great advance can be made in the cause of international peace. I speak as a practical man, and whatever I now advocate, I actually tried to do when I was, for the time being, the head of a great nation, and keenly jealous of its honor and interest. I ask other nations to do only what I should be glad to see my own nation do. The advance can be made along several lines. First of all, there can be treaties of arbitration. There are, of course, states so backward that a civilized community ought not to enter into an arbitration treaty with them, at least until we have gone much further than at present in securing some kind of international police action. But all really civilized communities should have effective arbitration treaties among themselves. I believe that these treaties can cover almost all questions liable to arise between such nations if they are drawn with the explicit agreement that each contracting party will respect the other's territory and its absolute sovereignty within that territory, an equally explicit agreement that, aside from the very rare cases where the nation's honor is vitally concerned, all other possible subjects of controversy will be submitted to arbitration. Such a treaty would ensure peace unless one party deliberately violated it. Of course, as yet, there is no adequate safeguard against such deliberate violation. But the establishment of a sufficient number of these treaties would go a long way towards creating a world opinion which would finally find expression in the provision of methods to forbid or punish any such violation. Secondly, there is the further development of the Hague Tribunal of the work of the conferences and courts at The Hague. It has been well said that the first Hague Conference framed a Magna Carta for the nations. It set, about, uh, it set before us an ideal which has already, to some extent, been realized, and towards the full realization of which we can all steadily strive. The second conference made further progress. The third should do yet more. Meanwhile, the American government has more than once tentatively suggested methods for completing the Court of Arbitral Justice, constituted at the Second Hague Conference, and for rendering it effective. It is earnestly to be hoped that the various governments of Europe, working with those of America and of Asia, shall set themselves seriously to the task of devising some method which shall accomplish the result. If I may venture the suggestion, it would be well for the statesmen of the world in planning for the erection of this world court to study what has been done in the United States by the Supreme Court. I cannot help thinking that the Constitution of the United States, notably in the establishment of the Supreme Court and in the methods adopted for securing peace and good relations among and between the different states, offers certain valuable analogies to what should be striven for in order to secure, through the Hague Courts and Conferences, a species of world federation for international peace and justice. There are, of course, fundamental differences between what the United States Constitution does and what we should even attempt at this time to secure at The Hague. But the methods adopted in the American Constitution to prevent hostilities between the states and to secure the supremacy of the federal court in certain classes of cases are well worth the study of those who seek at The Hague to, it, to obtain the same results on a world scale. Finally, it would be a masterstroke if those great powers honestly bent on peace would form a league of peace, not only to keep the peace among themselves, but to prevent, by force if necessary, its being broken by others. 
The supreme difficulty in connection with developing the piecework of The Hague arises from the lack of any executive power, of any police power to enforce the decrees of the court. In any community of any size, the authority of the courts rests upon actual or potential force. In the existence of a police, on the knowledge that the able-bodied men of the country are both ready and willing to see that the decrees of judicial and legislative bodies are put into effect. In new and wild communities where there is violence, an honest man must protect himself. And until other means of securing his safety are devised, it is both foolish and wicked to persuade him to surrender his arms while the men who are dangerous to the community retain theirs. He should not renounce the right to protect himself by his own efforts until the community is so organized that it can effectively relieve the individual of the duty of putting down violence. So it is with nations. Each nation must keep well prepared to defend itself until the establishment of some form of international police power, competent and willing to prevent violence as between nations. As things are now, such power to command peace throughout the world could best be assured by some combination between those great nations which sincerely desire peace and have no thought themselves of committing aggressions. The combination might at first be only to secure peace within certain definite limits and on certain definite conditions. But the ruler or statesman who should bring about such a combination would have earned his place in history for all time and his title to the gratitude of all mankind. How about that? I interesting implications for international peace, the establishment of an international police force of some sort, or, or perhaps this presages the League of Nations or the United Nations, and uh, well, opens up a great uh, uh, issues for commentary or questions that uh, might appear, uh, appear uh, here or elsewhere. I've enjoyed the dialogue with you uh, here at Teddy Talks. Uh, we'll continue. We've got some interesting programs uh, yet for the week ahead, uh, including uh, remarks, I do believe it's tomorrow, that will be at the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River, May 6th, 1903, Theodore Roosevelt's first view uh, of that canyon, about which he'd read uh, in the reports of uh, James Wesley Powell, uh, the one-armed Civil uh, War veteran who made his way down the canyon, uh, from the stories of Bucky O'Neill, who gave his life in Cuba, but first told Theodore Roosevelt stories of the Great Canyon, Bucky O'Neill's cabin is still on the South Rim. So that's tomorrow. We'll uh, have some other interesting programs through the week, but we'll conclude with uh, uh, remarks that are titled Colonial Policy of the United States. These collected by Putnam and Sons, uh, uh, and this is uh, uh, African and European addresses. So sort of Theodore Roosevelt in 1910, including this particular uh, uh, speech, not too long. So this is on that same evening now, May 5th, 1910, in Christiana or, or Oslo, Norway. When I first heard that I was to speak again this evening, my heart failed me. But directly after hearing Mr. Bratley, I feel that it is a pleasure to say one or two things. And before saying them, let me express my profound acknowledgement for your words. You have been not only more than just, but more than generous. Because I have been so kindly treated, I am going to trespass on your kindness still further and say a word or two about my own actions while I was president. I do not speak of them, my friends, save to illustrate the thesis that I especially uphold, that the man who has the power to act is to be judged not by his words, but by his acts. 
by his words and so far as they agree with his acts. All that I say about peace, I wish to have judged and measured by what I actually did as president. I was particularly pleased by what you said about our course, the course of the American people in connection with the Philippines and Cuba. I believe that we have the Cuban minister with us here tonight. Oh, wonderful. Well then, we have a friend who can check off what I am going to say. At the close of the war of 98, we found our army in possession of Cuba. And man after man among the European diplomats of the old school said to me, Oh, you will never go out of Cuba. You said you would, of course, but that is quite understood. Nations don't expect promises like that to be kept. As soon as I became president, I said, Now you will see that the promise will be kept. We appointed a day when we would leave Cuba. On that day, Cuba began its existence as an independent republic. Later, there came a disaster, there came a revolution, and we were obliged to land troops again while I was president. Then the same gentleman with whom I had conversed before said, Now you are relieved from your promise. Your promise has been kept, and now you will stay in Cuba. I answered, No, we shall not. We will keep the promise not only in the letter but in the spirit. We will stay in Cuba to help it on its feet. And then we will leave the island in better shape to maintain its permanent independent existence. Before I left the presidency, Cuba resumed its career as a separate republic, holding its head erect as a sovereign state among the other nations of the earth. All that our people want is just exactly what the Cuban people themselves want. That is a continuance of order within the island, peace and prosperity, so that there shall be no shadow of an excuse for any outside intervention. We acted along the same general lines in the case of San Domingo. We intervened only so far as to prevent the need of taking possession of the island. None of you will know of this, so I will just tell you briefly what it was that we did. The Republic of San Domingo in the West Indies had suffered from a good many revolutions. In one particular period when I had to deal with the island while I was president, it was a little difficult to know what to do because there were two separate governments in the island and a revolution going on against each. A number of dictators uh, under the title of president had seized power at different times and borrowed money at exorbitant rates of interest from Europeans and Americans and had pledged the custom houses of the different towns to different countries. And the chief object of each revolutionary was to get hold of the custom houses. Things got to such a pass that it became evident that certain European powers would land and take possession of parts of the island. We then began negotiations with the government of the island. We sent down ships to keep within limits various preposterous little manifestations of the revolutionary habit. And after some negotiations, we concluded an agreement. It was agreed that we should put a man in as head of the customs houses that the collection of customs should be entirely under the management of that man, and that no one should be allowed to interfere with the custom houses. Revolutions could go on outside them without interference from us, but the custom houses were not to be touched. We agreed to turn over to the San Domingo government 45% of the revenue, keeping 55% as a fund to be applied to a settlement with the creditors. The creditors also acquiesced in what we had done, and we started the new arrangement. 
I found considerable difficulty in getting the United States Senate to ratify the treaty, but I went ahead anyhow and executed it until it was ratified. Finally, it was ratified, for the opposition was a purely factious opposition, representing the smallest kind of politics with a leaven of even baser motive. Under the treaty, we have turned over to the San Domingo government 45% of the revenues collected, and yet we have turned over nearly double as much as they ever got when they collected it all themselves. In addition, we have collected sufficient to make it certain that the creditors will receive every cent to which they are entitled. It is self-evident, therefore, that in this affair we gave a proof of our good faith. We might have taken possession of San Domingo. Instead of thus taking possession, we put into the custom houses one head man and half a dozen assistants to see that the revenues were honestly collected, and at the same time serve notice that they should not be forcibly taken away. And the result has been an extraordinary growth of the tranquility and prosperity of the islands, while at the same time the creditors are equally satisfied, and all danger of outside interference has ceased. That incident illustrates two things. First, if a nation acts in good faith, it can often bring about peace without abridging the liberties of another nation. Second, our experience emphasizes the fact, which every peace association should remember, that the hysterical sentimentalist for peace is a mighty poor person to follow. I was actually assailed right and left by the more extreme members of the peace propaganda in the United States for what I did in San Domingo. Most of the other professional peace advocates took no interest in the matter or were tepidly hostile, however. I went straight ahead and did the job. The ultra-peace people attacked me on the ground that I had declared war against San Domingo, the war taking the shape of the one man put in charge of the custom houses. This will seem to you incredible, but I am giving you an absolute accurate account of what occurred. I disregarded those foolish people, as I shall always disregard sentimentalists of that type when they are guilty of folly. At the present, we have comparative peace and prosperity in the island. In consequence of my action and of my disregard of these self-styled advocates of peace, the same reasoning applies in connection with what we did the Isthmus of Panama and what we are doing in the Philippines. Our colonial problems in the Philippines are not the same as the colonial problems of other powers. We have in the Philippines a people mainly Asiatic in blood, but with a streak of European blood and with the traditions of European culture, so that their ideals are largely the ideals of Europe. At the moment when we entered the islands, the people were hopelessly unable to stand alone. If we had abandoned the islands, we should have left them a prey to anarchy for some months, and then they would have been seized by some other power, ready to perform the task that we had not been able to perform. Now I hold that it is not worthwhile being a big nation if you cannot do a big task. I care not whether that task is digging the Panama Canal or handling the Philippines. In the Philippines, I feel that the day will ultimately come when the Philippine people must settle for themselves whether they wish to be entirely independent or in some shape to keep up a connection with us. That day has not yet come. It may not come for a generation or two. One of the greatest friends that liberty has ever had, the great British statesman Burke, said on one occasion that there must always be government, and that if there is not government from within, then it must be supplied from without. 
The child has to be governed from without because it has not yet grown to a point when it can govern itself from within. And a people that shows itself totally unable to govern itself from within must expect to submit to more or less of government from without because it cannot continue to exist on other terms. Indeed, it cannot be permitted permanently to exist as a source of danger to other nations. Our aim in the Philippines is to train the people so that they may govern themselves from within. Until they have reached this point, they cannot have self-government. I will never advocate self-government for a people so long as their self-government means crime, violence, and extortion, corruption within, lawlessness among themselves and towards others. If that is what self-government means to any people, then they ought to be governed by others until they can do better. What I have related represents a measure of practical achievement in the way of helping forward the cause of peace and justice, and of giving to different people freedom of action according to the capacities of each. It is not possible, as the world is now constituted, to treat every nation as one private individual can treat all other private individuals, because as yet there is no way of enforcing obedience to law among nations as there is amongst private individuals. If in the streets of this city a man walks about with the intent to kill somebody, if he manages his house so that it becomes a source of infection to the neighborhood, the community, with its law officers, deals with him forthwith. That is just what happened at Panama. And as nobody else was able to deal with the matter, I dealt with it myself on behalf of the United States government. And now the canal is being dug, and the people of Panama have their independence and a prosperity hitherto unknown in that country. In the end, I firmly believe that some method will be devised by which the people of the world as a whole will be able to ensure peace as it cannot now be ensured. How soon that end will come, I do not know. It may be far distant. And until it does come, I think that while we should give all the support that we can to any possible feasible scheme for quickly bringing about such a state of affairs, yet we should meanwhile do the more practicable, though less sensational things. Let us advance step by step. Let us, for example, endeavor to increase the number of arbitration treaties and enlarge the methods for obtaining peaceful settlements. Above all, let us strive to awaken the public international conscience so that it shall be expected and expected efficiently of the public men responsible for the management of any nation's affairs, that those affairs shall be conducted with all proper regard for the interests and well-being of other powers, great or small. That's Theodore Roosevelt, the evening of May 5th, 1910, in Christian, Norway. Uh, they say the crowds in Europe were enormous uh, to see Theodore Roosevelt, the former president of this great republic. Thanks for being with us here on Teddy Talks. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Uh, be safe. Godspeed, all our doctors, nurses, and responders. We'll see you here tomorrow, May 6th, celebrating Theodore Roosevelt at the Grand Canyon, May 6th, 1903. Goodbye. Goodbye.